Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. This time it's 1967. On May 24th of that year, a KCBS radio newsman named Harv Morgan would devote his nighttime contact program to a discussion of what was going on in the Middle East. The crisis was brewing and the Six-Day War would break out two weeks later. First, a bit about Harv Morgan. Harv was an inquisitive man. He was a a buff of Civil War era history. He collected roll-top desks. And how do I know this? I know this because Harv Morgan uh, actually influenced a number of eventual radio journalists during his time as a professor at San Francisco State University, and I was one of them. Harv had come from the Midwest after building a successful career in Cleveland. He came to San Francisco, spent a number of years at KCBS, eventually a number more at KGO Radio, where he was a beloved anchor. Before retiring, he spent part of his retirement living in Mexico, part of it in Texas, and was an inquisitive man and an interesting person to talk with right to the end. In this session, and and you'll note rather a different approach to doing a radio interview program than you might hear today, Morgan brought aboard two experts from the Bay Area to talk about the Middle East and how the situation had gotten to where it was, but he gave each of them an awful lot of time. Not a whole lot of questions, a lot of listening. The first guest is Christina Harris, a longtime Middle East expert at the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. The second guest with Harb Morgan that evening was UC Berkeley professor George Lanchowski, who founded the, uh, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Cal and was the first chair of that center. You will note some gaps do exist in this program. Apparently, on the original recording, some of the commercial breaks were telescoped. And I would also note that the audio reel-to-reel tape that we had available to digitize for this podcast ended suddenly, so it apparently was not a complete recording of the program. The crisis in the Middle East, our contact topic this evening, and I'm uh, very glad to have in the contact studio two people who can uh, give us their uh, expert opinions and expert views on what not only is happening there now, but perhaps why it's happening there. It seems that uh, on this program and on the uh, other programs here on KCBS during the day, especially on Fred Wilcox, there are so many people calling in with uh, different opinions, different views, almost as if uh, they were reading history uh, books uh, written totally uh, by different people, uh, people with different uh, historical perspectives, people simply with differences of opinion. So for that reason... We're uh, going to uh, try to be as factual as possible, as academic, uh, if you will, as possible, with my two guests in the contact studio this evening. Professor Christina Harris, Professor of Political Science at Stanford and the Division of International Relations, specializing in Middle Eastern Affairs. Uh, Professor Harris has worked in the State Department as an area specialist. 
She has lived in the Middle East, in Lebanon, Syria, and in Egypt. And she's the author of uh, several books, The Syrian Desert as a Bridge for Communication, and uh, the co-author of the book, This Age of Conflict, and her most recent uh, book, Nationalism and Revolution in Egypt. Also, Professor George, Lynch, Professor George Lynchowski, Professor of Political Science at the University of California at Berkeley. Professor Lynchowski has taught at uh, Cal for 15 years. He's written uh, four books, all on this general area of the world, Russia and the West in Iran, the Middle East and World Affairs, Oil and State in the Middle East, and Contracts and Private International Law. Professor Lynchowski has uh, lived in the Middle East also for a total of nine years. He's visited uh, that area every year for the past 15 and is now writing a book on the ideologies of the Middle East. Now, we'll have a chance later on to get to your questions, the questions and views you've been raising and expressing on the air for the past few days later on. First, I would like to have, though, a, a little discussion with my guest, since this is something that uh, has come up that, frankly, most of us, including myself, know so little about. So one at a time, I'd like to ask uh, my guest for their assessments, generally, of the crisis currently going on in the uh, Middle East. Professor Harris? Hi. I'm very pleased to talk about a problem that has been concerning me deeply ever since the partition of Palestine in 1947. Uh, partition of the country between uh, the United Nations partition of the country, a General Assembly decision between the Arabs of Palestine, Christian and Muslim Arabs both, on the one hand, and the Israelis on the other. The Arabs numbered 1,200,000 approximately at that time. The Israelis, the Zionists who are now the Israelis, numbered approximately 600,000. The decision was to partition the, the country against the wishes of the Arab majority which was viewed by them as a completely undemocratic solution and one that did not give the majority of the country self-determination. From that day, they have viewed Israel, when it proclaimed itself a state in 1948 at the termination of the Palestine Mandate, they have viewed Israel as an aggressor in their midst. More than this, the Arab-Israeli war that followed the self-proclamation of Israel left thousands of Arab-Palestine Arab refugees outside the country. They were fled. Many of them were terrorized into fleeing by the tactics of the splinter groups within Israel, the underground, Irgun and Stern Gang and people of that kind. The result was that these people settled around Israel in the hope of returning. Today there are 1,315,000 and some hundred of these refugees. The United Nations at the end of the Arab-Israeli War passed a resolution which is as passed annually every year since then, which has also been subscribed to by the United States of America to the effect that the Palestine Arabs who are refugees should have an option. They should have the right to choose to return to Palestine and their homes there if they wish, or if they do not wish, they should have compensation. 
they've received neither right. The Israelis have consistently, every year that the resolution has been passed, refused to entertain uh, acting under it. Now, there are other reasons for a build-up which seems to me to have been getting more acute, more grave as the years go on. The problem very simply is that of two expanding nationalist groups, the Palestine Arabs who are a part of the new world of Arab nationalism, the Israeli Zionists who are political nationalists, and the two movements have grown almost simultaneously. They started in the period of the mandate. They've grown simultaneously in antipathy to each other because each wanted the whole of the land of Palestine. The Arabs had lived there for 1,300 years and considered it their land. Uh, the newcomers from Western Europe who were refugees in their original terms, so to speak, from Europe, from the Germans, uh, they considered that they had a right to the historical connection of their land, which had been recognized in the Balfour Declaration in 1917, a right to settle and colonize in a, an Arab country, which when they first went into it was 90% Arab in population. Now this is the kind of situation that tends to get worse as time goes on rather than better. As the national movement in each group grows, uh, the antipathies become stronger, uh, the hostilities become more definite. However, for our purposes this evening, it seems to me that we must go back to what, in my view, has been the major cause for the intense upbuilding of antagonisms. And this was the unilateral diversion of water from the Jordan River system by the Israelis into Israel. Now, there are four river range states of the Jordan River and its system. The Jordan River's main sources are rise in Syria and in Lebanon. They are both river range states. Jordan is the one that has the longest frontier, uh, isn't a frontier under international law, it's merely an armistice demarcation line, has a, an armistice demarcation line of something like 600 miles with Israel. And all of the lower Jordan, south of the Sea of Galilee, except for about two, uh, the, or the Lake of Tiberias, whichever you prefer to call it, all of the Jordan River south of that, as it flows into the Dead Sea, goes through Jordan. At least half of the refugees of the Arab-Israeli war live in Jordan. They have been offered citizenship, those who could uh, qualify for jobs and employment, but the large majority of them live in refugee camps in the Jordan Valley and are dependent upon the Jordan River. The Arabs made it quite plain when Israel announced that it was about to divert the water of the Jordan, that if they did so, this would be considered, in their view, a provocation for war. Just so I have it straight now, they uh, diverted the water uh, at the spot in the river where it went through Israel? 
Uh, they diverted it from the Sea of Galilee, which is within the partitioned half. boundary of Israel. I see. But it's a part of the total system. I see. Mm -hmm. And under international legal uh, concepts, you cannot divert water from a, a river system out of its natural basin mm. without the consent of all the riverine countries involved. In other words, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan had a right to uh, withhold their consent or to give it before any such diversion took place. And this took place when? Uh, it was announced in 63. Uh, I think it actually started at the very beginning of 64. Do you remember, George? Yes. Was that, that's mm. my recollection. It was the okay. very end of 63. Yeah, I was wondering at that point, since you thought it was a major point. Yes. yes, go ahead. So that, in my view, from that moment, I was predicting a war situation developing. Now, the immediate result of this was not war. The Arabs did not declare war at that time. They didn't take any specific military action, but there was a series of what I'm sure everyone uh, will remember as the summit conferences, the Arab summit conferences. Many of the proceedings of the summit conferences were not made public. This was Arab League affairs. Uh, their concern uh, was for their own uh, Arab state and what their plans were going to do, how were they going to counteract what they considered a deadly blow vis-a-vis uh, -vis the riverine states of the Jordan that were Arab. They set up at that time, planned for and eventually established, a joint political and military command so that if the situation was not remedied, they could act together. Still, they did not act militarily as governments at all. However, and this is where the most recent crisis issue comes to the fore, the United Arab Republic, which became the United Arab Republic uh, after the union of, of Egypt with Syria in 1958, the United Arab Republic, which is now acting in conjunction with Syria, though Syria is no longer a part of the Republic, the UAR committed themselves, President Nasser and the government of the UAR committed themselves to support these other riverine Arab states in the event of hostilities with Israel. There it rested for a while. And then, a little while ago, a, an extra legal, if you like, an extra governmental, quite outside any government uh, direct sponsorship, organization was formed called the Palestine Liberation Organization. It was a commando, an unofficial commando force of guerrillas. And they operated out of, first out of Syria, and then, according to Israeli charges, some of them began to operate by going through Jordan as well and operating from Jordan. Uh, they're illegal in Jordan. Uh, the Jordan government has disclaimed any knowledge of their activities. But the fact is that there have been these uh, extravagantly uh, annoying raids to Israel. They've blown up power stations and done that kind of thing. And Israel has become more and more irked with this uh, needle pricking of this unofficial group of commandos. The result of Israel's 
uh, new and fresh hostility was quite simply two reprisal raids, one into Syria and the last one into Jordan, which was savage, military, militarily organized, militarily staffed, and armored. And this is within the past six months or so? Oh, yes, within mm -hmm. the past, I think, three months was, uh, was the Jordan one. And it was the Jordan raid of Israel, Jordan, uh, Israeli raid into Jordan, that earned the sternest censure that the United Nations Security Council has ever given to either side uh, in the whole course of this conflict. Now, so far as the government of Egypt go and President Nasser, May we, uh, just for a moment, before we uh, get into this yes. uh, aspect of it, just take uh, a moment out here. The completely refreshing taste of Coors is just seconds away. Subscribe to the best-selling newspaper in Loren, the well-edited Independent Journal. Well, the Independent Journal provides unusually heavy coverage of all Marin news, top features, complete sports, and business news. In short, it's the complete newspaper for all of Marin County. That's the Independent Journal, only $2 per month delivered to your home. Now, back once again, we're hearing the views of one of my guests this evening, Professor Christina Harris, on the crisis in the Middle East. Professor Harris? And I had just come to President Nasser's position in the government of Egypt mm -hmm. in the latest stage of this. Uh, prolonged crisis of hostilities between the two sides. President Nasser and the government of Egypt and the Egyptian people have never forgotten that Israel invaded Egypt in 1956 at the start of the Suez War in October. On October the 29th, they were the first of the triple invaders of Egypt. And that they did so after precisely just this type of Israeli military raid. They had been having a series of Israeli military raids against Egypt. The Gaza Strip was the first one in February of 55. Then the Israelis absorbed Al-Auja. Al-Auja is a demilitarized zone in which all the communications of the Sinai Peninsula are, uh, are uh, centered. That is, from Al-Auja you can reach any point in the Sinai Peninsula on the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, two areas of the Suez Canal, the Red Sea. In other words, this was a strategic advance on the part of Israel in 1955, and it was followed by other raids, like the one against Khan Yunus, Yunus which was again in the Gaza Strip. In other words, President Nasser, in 1955, after the first Gaza raid, had predicted at home, I don't know that he did so publicly, but he had predicted at home that it was his opinion that Israel was going to invade Egypt. Israel did invade Egypt in October of 56. Therefore, it seems to me that in his own mind he may easily be making an analogy between the situation uh, so far as the Egyptians were concerned in 55 and 6 and the situation so far as Syria and Jordan is concerned today, vis-a-vis mm. -vis Israel. Now, it seems likely to me 
that these Arab countries may have come to the conclusion, I have no official information, so this is my own opinion, but that they may have come to the conclusion, owing probably to information provided by their military intelligence, and the UAR's military intelligence is first class. They have often told the West things they didn't know, which we have had to admit were true eventually. That Israel is preparing to invade either Syria or Jordan, or perhaps even Egypt itself. The UAR, remember, is committed since the summit conferences to act with Syria and Jordan if there are hostilities. Therefore, if this is the conviction of President Nasser and the Egyptian government. Their joint military security with Syria and Jordan would require Egyptian mobilization in order to save them all from a surprise invasion, which is what happened to Egypt in 56. And the obvious move for the UAR government would be to secure the Egyptian coast of the Gulf of Aqaba at Sharm el-Sheikh, those are the Straits of Tehran, which are only between four and six miles wide, according to whether you include the islands in your measurement or not. They're tiny little straits. And the Saudis, uh, the Saudi uh, Arabians uh, hold the other side of the Straits of Tehran. That they would secure their own Egyptian coast, which up to this point they had allowed the United Nations Emergency Force to occupy in order at the request, uh, they, they did so at the request of the United Nations. They did so on sufferance in the sense that it was agreed that any time the United Nations was asked to leave, they would leave the Emergency Force. Mm -hmm. They would also, in the interest of their joint security, have to be prepared to counter any Israeli invasion in any one of the three directions by closing the Gulf of Sharm el-Sheikh to Israeli shipping because most of Israel's oil supply comes from Iran via the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba and this is a military strategic uh, material. President Nasser would, if he were going to, as he has done, occupy, reoccupy his own coast he would have to ask the United Nations force to leave for the simple reason that he would not be able to contemplate the possibility of battle lines suddenly catching the, the United Nations observers in between on Egyptian soil, where if they were accidentally or incidentally killed, uh, the Egyptians would receive the blame because they would be on mm. Egyptian soil. So that it seems to me that he had to ask them to leave and that Secretary General Utah had to agree to withdraw and withdraw as fast as possible. It's one of the things that gives me the feeling that uh, President Nasser really considers that the Israelis are about to invade in one direction or the other. That brings us up to the uh, actual withdrawal of the United Nations uh, troops. Let me uh, suggest that we hold back the activities of the last few days mm -hmm. uh, a little bit. Go we'll ahead. get into a discussion of that a little bit later because we have my second guest to hear from. And may, I, may I just add one All thing right, here, fine. however, and that is that when the Egyptians agreed to allow the United Nations Emergency Force to patrol their border, which is approximately 100 or 117 miles long with Israel, uh, the Israelis were asked to do the same thing by the United Nations and categorically refused, which is why the only one the only place where they are on the Egyptian side, 
They wished to occupy both sides mm -hmm. of the armistice demarcation line. Here. And the Israelis wouldn't tolerate it. They said no, if they wanted to stay, they could stay on the Egyptian side, and that was it. And uh, President Nasser allowed them to stay. Professor Harris, you've opened so many doors, we could spend the next uh, week on this program wandering through those doors and exploring what's behind them. We'll continue in just a moment. Boy, my mandolin, it's Riviera time. Hey, is that the Riviera where the girls wear those bikinis? You bet. When they're making our minestrone, those are kitchens that get the hot, the boy. Your family will sing praises tonight if you serve hearty portions of Riviera Western barbecue-style hot chili beans. Riviera's famous Italian chefs simmer them tenderly in delicious tomato chili sauce. Then they add a touch of zesty barbecue flavor. Convenient, too. All you do is heat and serve. Find Riviera hot chili beans and other fine Riviera Italian foods at all Lee Brothers stores. Try a frozen Luca pizza. Mmm. Try a frozen Luca pizza. Right. Try a frozen Luca pizza. If your family enjoys pizza, try the new frozen pizza that's really good. Luca sausage pizza. Luca's pizza is bubbling with cheese, sausage, and luscious pizza sauce. Convenient, too. All you do is pop it from package to oven. And what a pizza you'll find. Find Luca, Raviola, and other Luca Italian products at Stanaway Markets in Burlingame and Millbrae. This is Harvard in Contact. Our foresight was good as our hindsight. Few of us would ever have serious financial problems. At Citizens Federal Savings, more than 88,000 Bay Area families are proving their foresight by saving a part of their earnings for the future. Their funds are earning the maximum dividend rates permitted by the federal authorities. They receive the extra benefits of daily compounding, and their accounts are insured to $15,000. Now, each of these solid citizens at some future date will be glad they had the foresight to get started on a savings program. How about you? If you'd like to guarantee yourself a pleasant hindsight on money matters in years to come, you'll find a cordial welcome at the Citizens Federal Savings Office in your community or at the Home Office, 700 Market Street, San Francisco. And Citizen San Rafael office is at 288 Northgate Shopping Center. This is KCBS Radio 74 in San Francisco. For those of you who have chosen to uh, call in already on our lines, let me uh, say that uh, if you'd like to hang on, you know, go right ahead. That'll at least reserve your place on the line. We will be a while, though, before we get uh, to your call. I just want to tell you that well in advance. We're here now on his uh, general assessment of the uh, activities, the crisis, as it's been called, in the Middle East, from Professor George Lenchowski. Professor? Well, we have heard an analysis of the background of the Arab-Israeli conflict from um, Professor Harris. It, it seems to me that we can look at this in terms of three dimensions or three levels. Uh, first of all, there is what I would call a historical dimension. That's precisely what Professor Harris was trying to show us. How the state of Israel was created in the midst of a hostile Arab Sea, and how the Arabs have never reconciled themselves truly to the existence of the state of Israel in their midst. Um, we may add here, perhaps, to this analysis, that uh, actually the record of Arab-Israeli relations has been a record of frustration for the Arabs, because uh, the very establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 uh, resulted in an immediate war with the Arab states. The Arab states invaded at that time the territory of Palestine to put an end to the newly born state, and yet because of lack of their military preparedness and lack of proper 
uh, political unity and military coordination among them, they were defeated and had to agree uh, to an armistice, which uh, was not a peace treaty, but which acknowledged uh, the fact of life of the existence of the State of Israel and which provided for certain demarcation lines uh, to which we refer today as borders. However, they are not borders in the strictly legal sense because they are not a result of a peace treaty. So this was the first major frustration. The second frustration was the one to which Professor Harris referred, namely the Suez Crisis of 1956, the Israeli invasion of the Sinai Peninsula, and actually at that time the Israeli military successes during that campaign even before France and Great Britain intervened. As a result of the uh, Suez Crisis, um, the, the Israelis have achieved certain advantages. The principal advantage having been to open the um, Strait of Tehran, that is to open the Gulf of Aqaba to their contacts with the outside world. They did not achieve certain other objectives, for example, like the opening of the Suez Canal for their navigation. But the opening of the Gulf of Aqaba was an advantage secured because of Israeli military operations. Moreover, as was pointed out, the United Nations Emergency Force was stationed only on the Egyptian side of the borderline and not on the Israeli side. Actually, in purely legal technical terms, what President Nasser is doing today, that is refusing the presence of the UN Emergency Force on his territory, has been done in is by Israel 10 years ago. So, in in purely legal terms, uh, his demand does not exceed anything that Israel has demanded and secured already 10 years ago. However, let us remember that President Nasser accepted this unequal arrangement with the UN force in 1956-57 simply because he felt that he was in too weak a position not to accept it. However, in the long run, it certainly was a humiliating situation for him, and that I would again count among other frustrations of his and, and the Arabs. Uh, we may um, move um, uh, from uh, this frustration to the next frustration that already has been mentioned, the Jordan River uh, diversion. Um, here, the Israelis, as Mrs. Harris uh, has uh, pointed out, proceeded unilaterally. Naturally, I would like to point out that the Israelis did ask the Arab states for an agreement and cooperation. And they wanted badly to have uh, such an agreement. And in fact, the United States, at that time President Eisenhower, sent a special emissary, Eric Johnston, to help in reaching an agreement between the Arab states and Israel on this issue. Uh, the American view at that time was that uh, the use of waters should be considered as non-political question, that waters of uh, the Jordan River should simply be utilized for the benefit of the people regardless of who they are. And rather than have a negative attitude, let uh, both parties have a positive attitude as regards the utilization simply of this extremely important commodity. However, nothing is apolitical or non-political in the Middle East. In fact, I would dare to say that even dentistry will, bec will become political sooner or later. 
so that uh, uh, obviously an important economic matter like this could not be treated truly as a non-political question, and I think it was somewhat naive uh, on the part of our policymakers in Washington at that time to think that they could divorce it from the feeling of mutual hostility between uh, Israel and the Arabs. So nothing came out of these agreements, although various plans were presented. And the Israelis, somewhat in desperation and needing very badly that water, and we don't need to prove that because this is a pretty parched, parched land, simply diverted it to their own use, which produced, again, an Arab reaction in the form of those summit meetings and declarations of opposition. But concretely, the Israelis had their way. They obtained the water. The Arabs did not dare to make war on them. They just protested verbally, and even when they tried to divert the tributaries of the Jordan River located in Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan, so as to prevent the Israelis from having the water in the main river, water flowing from the headwaters, uh, again, they did not succeed in this design because the Israelis trained their guns on the working crews across the border in Syria and Lebanon, and a few incidents and shootings resulted in a virtual stoppage of work by, by the Arabs. So this was another frustration. There is an accumulation of Arab frustrations. That's one dimension. The second dimension, I would suggest, is an altogether different one, and that's the one that has uh, something to do with the inter-Arab relations, inner conflicts among the Arabs. Now, even the most nationalistic and patriotic Arabs would not deny that they are badly divided among themselves. They are divided into what we would call the conservative camp and the revolutionary camp. The conservative camp is composed primarily of Saudi Arabia and Jordan with certain other Arab monarchies such as Libya and Morocco standing somewhat in the background. The revolutionary camp is composed of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, all three countries that had revolutions, Algeria further in the west that had a revolution plus war of liberation, and finally Yemen where they had a revolution which has not resulted in a full victory of the Republicans, so there is a continuous civil war in Yemen. But these five Arab countries constitute what they call the liberated Arab camp. Actually, it's a revolutionary Arab camp that believes in socialism and in the liberation of the Arab homeland from imperialism, Zionism, and local reaction. That's their program. Well. This division in the Arab world today has reached a real law because President Nasser's propaganda in Cairo is calling actively for the overthrow of King Faisal in Saudi Arabia. In fact, uh, his deposed brother, King Saud, who is now a sort of a guest of uh, the Egyptian government in the UAR in Cairo, has recently declared that he does not recognize his ouster, that he would want to come back to his country, and he gets an active support from the UAR. So uh, uh, this is an obvious example of the split in these camps, and this is accompanied by a rather vicious mutual propaganda of hostility between the Kingdom of Jordan and the UAR. Under those circumstances, 
The question is, what arguments are used in this propaganda? Well, a very interesting argument that was being used by Radio Amman, that is the capital of the Kingdom of Jordan, against President Nasser in this mutual campaign, was as follows, that while Egypt is calling for liberation of Palestine from Israeli occupation, while Egypt is trying to mobilize the Arab world in a sort of a holy war against the Israelis, Egypt at the same time is not doing anything really to liberate the Holy Land from the presence of the Israelis because Egypt has agreed 10 years ago to the presence of the UN emergency force, has meekly accepted its presence on its own territory while the Israelis refused its presence on their territory, and as a result of this, the Israeli-Egyptian border has been the quietest of all the borders. So while propaganda in Cairo was beaming to the whole Arab world to liberate Palestine from the Zionist gangs, as they were calling it, from the Israeli presence and occupation, at the same time, the Egyptians were doing less than any other Arab nation in terms of actual hostility with the state of Israel. And the brunt of it actually was taken mostly by Syria, which has a very radical socialist government um, led by the Ba'ath Party, which means the Arab Renaissance Party, uh, the, its most left uh, extreme wing that is now in power. Now, this Syrian government has, ever since the beginning of the Arab summit conferences in 1963, been advocating uh, the so-called liberation of Palestine from Zionist occupation, that is simply the destruction of the state of Israel. It is very interesting that the three principal leaders of the Syrian government today, namely President Atassi, Premier Yusuf Zwayan, and Foreign Minister Ibrahim Mahus, are all MDs, and all of them had volunteered in the past to serve in the Algerian struggle for liberation. They were members, as a matter of fact, co-opted members of the Algerian uh, Front for Liberation. And it is from Algeria that they brought back to Syria a conviction that the only way in which the Arabs can secure their objectives is by engaging in the war of liberation of a guerrilla type. This war of liberation, therefore, would be uh, conducted by small groups, but properly trained of all sorts of guerrilla fighters, commandos. And Mrs. Harris has mentioned the Palestine Liberation Organization as one group. I may add here there is another group called the Asifa. There uh, are two, three, or four other groups uh, that engage in all sorts of incursions into the state of Israel to throw terror there. So this being the philosophy of uh, uh, the Syrian government, it has certainly embarrassed somewhat President Nasser because the Egyptian-Israeli uh, border has been the quietest one. And under the circumstances, uh, I am pretty sure that the Egyptian political leadership must have felt some urge to show that they are not behind the Syrians as regards their zeal and sincerity in the desire to liberate uh, Palestine from the Israelis. 
this is, broadly speaking, therefore, the second dimension, the dimension of inter-Arab conflict and rivalry that uh, may be perhaps a contributing factor to what has happened. Now, concretely, we have some immediate questions, however, to ask, because we see that the United Nations Emergency Force has been removed from um, the uh, positions it has been occupying, more concretely, three stretches, the Gaza Strip, um, uh, the Sinai, Egyptian-Israeli border, and uh, the Sharm el-Sheikh uh, position on uh, the Strait of Tehran in the Gulf of Aqaba. They have been replaced by the Egyptian troops, and the Egyptians have indeed blockaded the entry to the Gulf of Aqaba and even placed mines there. In the immediate questions, and that's the third dimension, is what will happen politically and militarily under those circumstances. First of all, will the Israelis challenge the blockade? They can challenge it militarily. In fact, uh, they possess a naval and air presence in the Gulf of Aqaba, which is not negligible. How strong it is, whether it's stronger of what the Egyptians have placed there now, is a moot question, and as a non-military person, I'm not in a position uh, to answer it, uh, furthermore, having no access to any classified information. But uh, surely enough, the Israelis possess a military presence there and are in a position to challenge. We do not know whether such a challenge would be successful or not. Secondly, will the United States test the blockade uh, by trying to send its own merchant ships through the blockade uh, and uphold their right for, uh, to free and innocent passage as international law calls it. Uh, President Johnson made it quite clear yesterday that the United States government considers the blockade of the Gulf of Aqaba as an illegal act. Uh, regarding the legality of this, undoubtedly, if we consider that this is or has been a peaceful situation, then any blockade of this sort is an act of aggression according to accepted principles of international law. However, we must point out that the Egyptian doctrine and the general Arab doctrine on this is that they are anyway at this, at, in the state of war with Israel that they have been ever since 1948 that only armistice divides them, consequently actions of this sort that they take are perfectly legal and justified. Well, here you have two doctrines clashing with each other. The third question that I would ask would be this. Uh, Secretary General of the UN, Yu Thant, has just been in Cairo. It appears that his mission has not been very successful, but we haven't yet heard a full report. The UN Security Council has been deliberating today and has not yet reached even the first uh, point or conclusion on the first point whether it should discuss the substance of the conflict because the whole discussion was still over the procedural issue whether the matter should be placed on the agenda of the Security Council. So obviously the UN action is slow and does not promise, frankly, to be very effective. However, Suppose that it results in some uh, 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 effects, in some results that would be fruitful, 
and that uh, a door will be open for the re-entry of the UN presence in the area, the question would arise, would the Israelis accept the presence of the UN force on their side of the border, a thing they refused to do for the past 11 years, as the, Egyptian did, uh, the Egyptians did during those 11 years, and will the Egyptians naturally accept this force too? But now it would have to be under, I would say, equal arrangement, because it would be too humiliating to President Nasser to accept this force uh, re-entering merely the Egyptian territory. And uh, perhaps uh, the last question uh, that could be asked here, many more could be asked of course, but among those that I'm at least formulating here in my mind is, what is the real comparative military strength of the United Arab Republic and Israel? And of course we have to keep Syria in mind as well. Now, many stories and many opinions are issued about this matter. Uh, 10, 11 years ago, it appears that the Egyptian forces were not very effective, that the Israelis had a rather easy ride into Sinai. But uh, over a decade has passed. The Egyptians have been armed heavily in the meantime by some even more sophisticated Soviet weapons, have had plenty of time to train their forces, and furthermore, have also had an opportunity to gain a great deal of logistical and other experience in their operations in Yemen, which should not be disregarded. Finally, we have the Syrian army, which is very politicized, to be sure, these days, but still constitutes a certain unknown quantity. You know, in addition to the questions that uh, you've posed, which I uh, am sure we'll have a chance to get into and discuss, is uh, you indicated there are dozens of others. I have a few, and I'm sure that our uh, guests on the contact line have some. We'll get right to them in just a moment at 982-7012 or in the East Bay, 834-2926. Then you're gonna want the all-new paper mate. Ops and pops, ops and pops. Do you like a wild child in a It's nine minutes now before 10 o'clock on Contact, so from now on, read Newsweek. The most interesting people you know are the kind of people who read Newsweek regularly. And a question uh, briefly from me first about your rugs, whether or not they're only half clean. Well, they are if you're only vacuuming. With HR2, electric flow foam shampoo, available at Lewis stores for a rental fee of only $2, you can rediscover the hidden beauty of your own rugs. The secret is the HR2 professional rug shampoo, the same formula used by commercial cleaners. And the rental is only $2 at Lewis stores, the same stores that are offering the amazing 19-cent dinnerware. HR2 and Lewis stores, good names to remember. In the East Bay, 834-2926 will reserve your place on the line. We'll have that uh, first call. Uh, just uh, one more point to be made uh, by Professor Harris. 
I hesitate even to add one thing to Professor Lanchowski's uh, magnificent presentation of the dimensions, which I wholly endorse. But there is a very important military consideration that the Arabs have to, have to take into account, and that is that they know, as the West also now knows, that the Israelis are about to perfect an atomic bomb. If there is going to be war, from their point of view, it has to come before that bomb is perfected. And at any day now, the, the Israelis may produce, may, may be able to put it into action. Well, isn't that assuming that, that uh, if they have one, they would use it? Certainly, that's, that's why it, it is the, the atomic plant that's been producing it mm. is in the Negev, which is right near the, the Gulf of Aqaba and the Sinai. Mm. But that would only be a determining factor if we assume that, that it would be used. Uh, yeah, it isn't quite ready to use yet. You see, mm. the point is it's almost ready, mm. but not quite. And if there, if there is going to be war, if there are going to be hostilities, it should be before that bomb is ready to use, not afterwards. I'm biting my tongue because I'd like to bite right into that one and uh, talk about it for a moment, but uh, let me exercise restraint and get right to that first call. If we'll uh, both uh, don the earphones, we'll have the first caller on the contact line at 982-7012 or in the East Bay, 834-2926. This is Harv Morgan, contact. Uh, good evening, Mr. Morgan. Good evening, sir, and thank you very much for waiting. Uh, I'd like to first congratulate you on uh, your two fine guests who have presented such a, a complete and, uh, I believe, accurate uh, uh, presentation of this problem. Uh, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to add two things, if I may, to what they have said. Uh, Professor Harris uh, pointed out these uh, UN resolutions that have been passed uh, every year since the uh, formation of the State of Israel. And I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe she left out one of them. Uh, she mentioned the option uh, for the refugees to return to uh, Palestine or to be compensated for their uh, losses that they incurred there. And I think these are the two points. And the third one I thought was uh, that the UN has passed a resolution that both sides uh, return to the original partition lines and for the na uh, nationalization of uh, or internationalization of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, now I believe uh, uh, the U uh, if, if the UN or, or the United States would use its influence in the UN to uh, force an implementation of these UN decisions and resolutions, I think this could be a first step toward peace in the Middle East. And I think uh, as a result, uh, the U United States would uh, gain the friendship or possibly the, uh, uh, the well, I would say the friendship of the Middle Eastern countries, the Arabic countries, because this is something I believe that Nasser has indicated he would want to have before any discussions could take place between the Arab leaders and the and Israeli leaders. Uh, may I add one other point to your other guest comments about the frustrations that the Arab countries have uh, uh, experienced? And uh, one of these frustrations is that I don't believe the Arab countries want to turn east. I believe uh, they want to be, uh, oh, I should say maybe mostly neutral. Uh, but I think they realize that their future is not east. It's probably west, if anything. However, I think they've been frustrated in that... Uh, in that, uh, that the West has not supported uh, these UN resolutions and has not uh, uh, implemented this, all this, uh, implemented these resolutions uh, and enforced this, these uh, legal matters that, that the UN, I, I don't know if I classify them as legal matters, but legal matters that the United Nations has uh, arrived 
at uh, Arthur, on that one, let me interrupt. Do you got any uh, comment or uh, answer from either of my guests? Uh, Harris? Uh, on the uh, issue of the internationalization of Jerusalem, uh, this was one of the conditions that was written into the partition plan for mm -hmm. Palestine by the United Nations. Yes. And I didn't mention it because the Israelis have categorically refused to consider the internationalization of Jerusalem from yes, the very first that. day. That's why I didn't mention it, because at the moment it's not an issue. Uh -huh. uh, I agree with you. If it could be internationalized, it, it certainly might contribute, certainly to safety for the pilgrims at the uh, various holy seasons. Uh, uh, well, uh, undoubtedly, uh, uh, the person asking these questions is right uh, in pointing out uh, that there were three sets of UN resolutions concerning the return of refugees, uh, the boundaries and internationalization of the holy places, including Jerusalem. Uh, however, we must say that um, the implementation, the, the realistic implementation of these three resolutions would have been extremely difficult um, under the circumstances because in the first place, if the refugees return in mass, and there are over a million of them, Obviously, realistically, this would mean a suicide for the state of Israel. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.